Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. As you're opening your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, a short confession is probably appropriate here. I, I knew when we began the Gospel of Mark last year that we would someday, Lord willing, and if the Lord didn't come back before then, we would come to Mark 10. And I don't mind telling you that there was a great degree then and now of trepidation as a pastor, as a preacher, to come to this passage. And the reason is the nuances of the subject that, would, that Jesus addresses in this passage are, are so voluminous that it's impossible in any one sermon, it's impossible in any one hour to ask and answer all the collateral questions that come up with the issues of marriage and divorce. I was praying for you all this morning and I, I thought if we have guests and visitors today and they show up on this day, they may well wonder what in the world is this church about? Except to say that we're doing Mark 10, 1 to 12 because last week we did the end of Mark and next week we'll keep going in Mark, Mark 10 or in a couple weeks. So we, uh, we just need to stop and study exactly what God has dealt us in this passage. It's about divorce. It's an important subject for any disciple of Jesus Christ. And we need to hear specifically from the Lord's lips himself. Mark chapter 10, follow along as I began reading in verse one. Getting up, he, Jesus, went from there to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered around him. And according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female for this reason. A man shall leave his father and mother and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Divorce is perhaps the most destructive force in society. I know that some may argue that there are more destructive forces. Some may say, well, drugs is a destructive force, and it is, or alcohol, and it is, or drunkenness, and it is, or sexual deviance, and it is, immorality, politics, and they are, but I truly believe that divorce is indeed the most destructive force in our world. Listen to these current statistics. Almost 50% of all marriages in the United States will end in divorce or separation. Can I read that statistic again? Almost 50%, and the reason it's almost is a few years ago it was 52%, this last year it was 49%. Almost 50% of marriages in the United States will end in divorce or separations. Researchers estimate that 41% of all first marriages end in divorce. And 60% of all second marriages end in divorce. And 73% of all third marriages end in divorce. 60% of second marriages, 73% of third marriages, you can see a decline. Think of this. There are, if you space out the statistic, there are nine divorces, nine divorces in the time it takes a couple to recite their wedding vows, which is about two minutes. 
If these statistics are true and correct, and we have no reason to assume that they're not, they come from very credible sources, think about this. One half of the homes in our culture will be dismantled by divorce, literally cut in half. Think about that for a moment. About half the homes in our culture will end up as broken homes or broken up by divorce. And let me just say this, that the devastation caused from divorce is incalculable. As we begin this study, and I have to tell you, it's going to take a few weeks to get through this. This is that important. We're gonna look at Mark 10 today. Look at Matthew's account of this um, next week, as well as what Paul says about divorce and remarriage. I think it's important that I let you all know that my parents divorced. I was 18, my younger siblings were 16, 14, and 12. I thought I was old enough to process it at the time, but to this very day, I am reeling in my heart about my parents' divorce. Four decades later, I still feel the effects of my parents' divorce. Years after their death, And my younger siblings had even a more difficult time processing that, understanding why. Many weeping nights with my little sister saying, what did I do to cause this? My brother saying, we need to figure out how we can save this marriage. I just wanna tell you, my own personal pilgrimage involves the breaking up of my parents. But... I have enjoyed unspeakable grace from Christ. I've enjoyed it in my own marriage. I enjoy it, the grace in my marriage, more than any other earthly blessing that God has given me. So at the beginning of this series, I think it's important that we just kind of stop, pause, pull the car over, and let me give a few pastoral comments, okay? Because I know the sweaty palms that are happening in this room right now. First of all, I am very aware that divorce affects every person in this room at some level, maybe in your immediate family, maybe in your extended family, maybe in your, uh, your, 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 your friends or acquaintances. And for some of you, it's affected you yourself. I'm aware of that. I wanna be sensitive to that. I wanna care for you in that, but we need to be honest with what God says and find the grace in his word for that. Secondly, we're gonna hear Jesus say, especially today, some very hard things. It's important to remember that God's word aims at producing our holiness, not protecting or coddling our feelings. Thirdly, not only is God serious about his commands, he is indescribably and unspeakably gracious to those who have disobeyed them. The gospel is for sinners. Divorce is a sin, but it's not beyond the reach of God's grace. So lest anyone who's experienced the ravages of divorce sit here this week, next week, or maybe the following week, and feel uncomfortable. Just know that that may be a sin in your past, but the rest of us around you have our own resume for which we desperately need the grace of God. We have no rocks to throw at you. And then fourthly, I pray that if you've, if you're married and you've thought about divorce, that Jesus' teaching will compel you to reconsider. I would beg you to reconsider if you've ever threatened your spouse with divorce, that you will repent and never do so again, that on your way home from today, you will look at your spouse and say, I am sorry, that is a threat I never want to utter and a threat I'll never follow through on. And if you've yet to marry, I pray you will understand by the gravity of the passages we'll look out in the next few weeks. The covenant of marriage, it is a serious covenant that God takes very seriously. You enter into marriage someday with a covenant in your future. And I want you to enter without the slightest consideration that there is a back door to your relationship. Now before marriage is the time to truly understand Jesus' teaching on divorce. And fifth, you are likely going to find yourself today saying, yes, but... 
But you don't know my situation. You don't know my sister's situation. You don't know my brother's situation. There was a sexual sin here. There was abuse here. There was abandonment here. I, I know, <laughs> I know. But we can't deal with all of that today. So full disclosure, today is going to leave off as a cliffhanger. We can't answer every question, but over the next few weeks, I, I trust that we can answer the ones that the Bible is explicit about. So lest you think that you're gonna find everything that the Bible says about divorce in the next few minutes, I am not that good a preacher. So we will know, we will get to that when we can. Today, we wanna hear what Mark said about what Jesus said about divorce. So we're gonna let Mark have the microphone, let him sing the song that God has inspired him to sing. And then next week, we'll use collateral passages from Matthew and from Paul to give a full-orbed understanding of marriage and divorce. But we cannot do that until first understanding how God has inspired Mark to say what he says in this passage under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit himself. And as again, again, I'm sure all of you already have many questions today. And we are gonna come back to this and examine the subject in the future, next week rather. All to say, this is impossible to be comprehensive on this week, next week, and the next 12 weeks. I have a friend that you all know, our pastor, friend, teacher, John MacArthur. He was asked a question in a Q&A one time and I was surprised by his answer. Phil Johnson was asking him, John, if you could, you've been studying the Bible for 50 years, if you... If you could ask God for clarification about one issue, what would it be? And I expected him to say the hypostatic union or the Trinity or uh, predestination and, and man's uh, uh, choice. You know what he said? I would love to know more about divorce and remarriage. And that's because these principles need to be so carefully and wisely and pastorally applied in every situation. There is not a one-size-fits-all point of counsel. So we cannot possibly hope to be comprehensive today, but we can hear what Mark said about what Jesus said about this issue. At the heart of Jesus' teaching is that marriage is a permanent, one-fleshed relationship and it is of divine origin. It is a permanent, one-fleshed relationship of divine origin. So we understand the very simple statement that Malachi uttered, quoting God himself in Malachi 2.16, God said, I hate divorce says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed in your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. God hates divorce. And I think as we go through this passage, you'll understand a little bit more why that is. Now, in the context, in the flow of the writing of the Gospel of Mark, remember, Mark is talking to us about discipleship, how to be a follower, a faithful follower of Jesus. And this means that marriage is a significant part and point of following Christ. Now, think about it. If you look down the page, in chapter 10, verse 28, Peter says, we have left everything and followed you. And that's a great command. That's a great uh, uh, exclamation, exclamation rather of the fact that they had left everything. Well, as Mark is defining, you know, cut off uh, uh, anything that's sinful and influence that we studied last week. Your, your eye, pluck it out. Your hand, cut it off. Your feet, cut them off. Metaphorically, anything that causes us to be tempted to sin, let's distance us, ourselves from that. It would be fair to say, well... What if my marriage makes me stumble? What if I think I could be more faithful as a follower of Jesus by myself? Paul will actually talk about the joy of being single and how you can follow that next week. But is it a footnote that leaving everything could include leaving your spouse? I think the where this is situated before Peter asked that question in verse 28 tells us no, under no circumstances should someone consider a divorce 
to greater, in a greater way follow Christ. I only say that because there were monks sometimes who devoted themselves to Christ in the medieval church who divorced wives and became monks. Now, some people say that was because they couldn't stand living with that woman, so they ran to the monastery. I don't know the case on that, but that's not a legitimate biblical out. Abraham Caravilla writes, divorce is a sign of hard-heartedness and non-adherence to scripture. Divorce is incompatible with discipleship, end quote. Mark then is using the account here of Jesus' teaching as another building block for his readers to understand what it means to be a disciple and a follower of Jesus. The permanence of marriage, the sinfulness of divorce, are a part of the commitment and a worldview a true believer has toward Christ's likeness and following him. So let's dive into these 12 verses and we're gonna go fast, okay? We need to kind of oil up the spines of our Bible and get ready to move fast. For an outline, I wanna break this down just as, just as Jesus does, or Mark lays it out here. This comes right out of the grammar and the structure of the text Jesus teaching on divorce, specifically three critical realities. Three critical realities. And you and I must know them, own them, understand them, teach them, and apply them. Three critical realities as Jesus teaches on divorce. Number one, people will eagerly justify divorce. I know that sounds like something we might have made up in our contemporary culture. No, that comes right out of the text. People will eagerly justify, give excuses for divorce. Verse one, getting up, stop right there. Getting up from where? He is getting up in Capernaum, which is way north, 100 miles north. So if you can think of it this way, if you can kind of follow my, my, uh, my little finger here. They were up here in Galilee. Jesus drops down the Jordan River Valley and he's, he's right here at the juncture of the Jordan River. He's gonna be on the, the east side and Jerusalem is up on the west side a few miles going up a hill. We don't know anything about from Mark his descent through the Decapolis, which Luke and Matthew give us insight on. He jumps from Galilee to Perea or just outside of Jerusalem in the, in, the, in the county, we could say, of Judea. He went up from there, went from there, Capernaum, to the region of Judea down south, beyond the Jordan, about 100 miles south. Now, beyond the Jordan means east of the Jordan. That was a safer place than west of the Jordan because just a few miles west of the Jordan were Herod's palaces, Mark that in your mind and remember that in just a moment. So we come to Mark 10, we're transported from the north to the south, from Galilee to Judea, Perea, the east side of the Jordan River. And Jesus would ultimately stay there for not more than a few weeks and go up the, the, uh, the serious ridge toward Jerusalem where he would enter in his Passion Week, his last week, and die. Crowds gathered around him again. I love that again. And according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. He's a teacher. He understands that truth is rational. He's not telling everybody to feel a certain way. He is instructing them. He's aiming for their thinking, not just their feeling. He teaches them. The crowds would likely have been made up of some who had followed him from the north to the south and also some new people who perhaps had heard him in Jerusalem before and maybe people who had never seen him in person. This is their, their first time to see the, the miracle worker from Galilee, the Nazarene who's now in their region. As was his custom, he begins to teach. Now, I think it's stronger if you look at the New American Standard. It says, some Pharisees came up to Jesus. That sounds so innocuous. Some Pharisees take the sum out. Pharisees, this is the group, Pharisees came up to Jesus. We've met the Pharisees many times before. They were a group of religious theological conservatives who lived a very liberal lifestyle. And they were testing him. You could say trying to trap him. They began began to question him Here's the the subject of of their query. Whether it was lawful, you can insert biblical. 
for a man to divorce a wife. This verse is way more loaded than might first appear. It's really important to understand the audiences that Jesus teaches when he addresses divorce. It's really, really super important to remember that that he had already taught on divorce up in Galilee. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Just as a footnote, you can read this. We'll talk about it next week. This account is also outlined and, and given in the book of Matthew, chapter 19. He gives a little different details that we'll discuss in just a moment. Uh, he adds a few things that Mark decides to leave out. And the question asked by the Pharisees here in verse two is not an innocent curiosity. They didn't come up to him and say, you know what, we've been talking about divorce and we're just curious, what do you think? They were testing him. They were trying to trap him, trying to discredit him. Now think about the trap they were setting for a moment. Remember when we studied the death of John the Baptist in chapter six, verses 17 to 29? John the Baptist had spoken out publicly about the immorality and the divorce of Herod. And Herod had John executed. This was public news. This was the front page of the Jerusalem Times if there were such a thing. Everyone knew about this. Now Jesus is just a few miles across the river from Herod's palaces I said plural, palaces. And the Pharisees try to trap him. If they could make Jesus say that divorce was wrong, then they might pit Jesus against Herod like John the Baptist had been pitted against Herod and maybe Herod would kill him. This wasn't innocent. They weren't theologically or pragmatically curious. To better understand the setting, also, we have to get a glimpse of the rival Jewish factions and tensions that were at play in this debate. There were two main schools of thought, of interpretation in, uh, in the day. Just like there were Pharisees and Sadducees, there were also, in the Pharisees, uh, uh, two different camps as well. Uh, Rabbi Shammai and, Shammai and Rabbi Hillel. Now, this is important. Rabbi Shammai said, there's no such thing as divorce. Mo Moses never permitted it. He didn't have a great following. Rabbi Hillel, though, of which almost all the Pharisees who, who they followed, taught that you could divorce your wife, get this, for any reason at all. These are some of the reasons on the commentary on Hillel in the Mishnah. You could divorce your wife for burning dinner. You could divorce your wife for putting too much salt in the food. You could divorce your life to, for speaking to another man. You could divorce her for refusing your control over her. You could divorce her because she said something unkind about your mom, her mother-in-law. You could divorce her for being infertile. You could divorce her for having daughters and not sons. And also, you could divorce her under Hillel. You could divorce her if you simply found someone prettier. This was the view that the Pharisees taught. Two distinct camps, divorce for adultery only, divorce for any cause, even in that camp. But they went with the any cause. Let me explain that. By the way, uh, quick footnote, these divorces were only allowed for a man to divorce his wife, never for a woman to divorce her husband. That was not the case in, in uh, Rome where Mark is likely aiming his, his uh, gospel. So it's more generic as he frames it. I think it's interesting that they knew exactly what Jesus thought about this. They weren't curious he had already taught on the subject in the Sermon on the Mount and you can be sure after he taught this up in Galilee a couple of years before that everyone knew where Jesus stood on this issue. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? You can just listen. If you wanna turn there, you may. Matthew chapter five, Jesus said, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Deuteronomy, uh, we'll, we'll see in a moment, 24. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the cause of unchastity, adultery, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits 
adultery. This is what the Pharisees had taught. Listen, this is what the Pharisees had regularly done. They knew Jesus' teaching. If they could get him to restate that, maybe they could get him in trouble with Herod just a few miles across the river. Maybe the, maybe the, the, the political authorities, Herod, would take care of Jesus for them. They were trying to trap the Lord. Based on the Sermon on the Mount, the woman, they, uh, the, the, a Pharisee might have divorced, became an adulterer, and the man she married became an adulterer, and then if they married again, they became adulterers, and it was on and on and on. So they were self-indicted and very bitter at asking this question. If you understand why the Pharisees were trying to trap the Lord, you understand the, the heinousness of their question. Jesus had taken a firm stand on divorce. It was not popular. And it's not hard to imagine that some of the very men questioning him on this had been divorced themselves. The hope and plan of these wicked Pharisees was to get Jesus to repeat his strong statements he'd mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount. And if so, he would alienate the people and get in trouble with Herod. So Jesus does something that he often does. I, I love to trace Jesus's response. He doesn't give them an answer. He gives them a question. He answers their question with another question. Verse three. He answered and said to them, doesn't say he answered their question. He gave an answer and said to them, what did Moses command you? What did Moses tell you? Now, when it's Moses, Moses hadn't been there speaking. Moses wasn't alive. Moses was, wasn't uh, uh, communicating uh, verbally to them. But when you see the word Moses, that was shorthand for the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Specifically, their question was about the lawlessness of divorce, the biblicalness of divorce. So Jesus goes to the law that they had mentioned and Moses was simply the shorthand for that law. So they're trying to trap the Lord. They're trying to trap Jesus. And these Pharisees don't know that Jesus is actually gonna reverse the trap and spring it on them. So they answer back. They said, well, Moses, actually he permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Trap. Did Moses command them to divorce? Jesus said, did he command you? What did Moses command? And they give this answer. He appeals to Deuteronomy 24, verses one to four. Deuteronomy 24, you're welcome to look there. Deuteronomy 24, one to four, where Moses is talking on the plains of Moab as the people are going into the promised land. And Moses says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. That's such an important phrase. No favor in his eyes, the husband's eyes, because he's found in her some indecency. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts her, it in her hand and sends her out from his house. She leaves his house. She goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce also and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. What is this indecency? Just a quick comment on indecency. It means uncleanness or in the traditional Jewish understanding, it could be a number of things. But in chapter 23, if you went back, you would find the same term indecent or unclean used when they regulate the, the, the body's elimination of waste. It's that word so here in this passage, if the man found something indecent in his wife, he could write her a certificate of divorce, something vile, shameful, improper, embarrassing. But the word indecency in 
chapter 24 is not the same word as adultery, which Moses uses very specifically in Deuteronomy. Adultery at this point in Israel's history did not result in a divorce. It resulted in death. Adulterers were executed. That's why this is not referring to adultery. This is, an indecent, this is something inappropriate in her life. Deuteronomy 22, 22, if a man is found lying with a married woman, both of them shall die. Leviticus 20, verse one, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. If Moses had meant adultery, he would have used that word here, but he didn't. So it's referring to something embarrassing, wicked, unpleasing, but not adultery because that ended in death, as I said. Nevertheless, whatever it was, the husband could choose to divorce her. There was a hardness of heart where he said, I cannot live with you in a reasonable way. If she married another man, she did become defiled by the sin of adultery because there was no legitimate basis for her divorce. And someone says, well, hang on, it wasn't her fault. He, he let her go. He dumped her. That's right. And the man is guilty of putting her in this unfortunate situation that when she does remarry, as we'll see at the end of our passage in Mark, the marriage was considered an adulterous marriage. But Jesus says in Matthew 25, everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of adultery, unchastity, makes her commit adultery and marries a divorced, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The point then here in Deuteronomy 24 is this. If you divorce your spouse for anything short of adultery, you literally multiply adultery. That's just the way God sees it. They took that passage, which is actually protecting the woman who is put out, and they said the little phrase, any indecency, and they translated that for any cause. But would you note in this passage, there is no command where Moses says, go get a divorce. He doesn't command anything here. Nowhere in the Mosaic law is there a command to divorce. As I said, simply speaking to the rights of a wife after the divorce and what was to happen to her if there was a remarriage. This certificate of divorce was written on a stone, a piece of parchment, as the reason for the divorce and protected the wife's reputation if there was no adultery. You say, what if she had committed adultery? Then they were supposed to be executed. This is to prove that she wasn't an adulterer. He didn't like her cooking or whatever. The certificate of divorce was a grace to protect the woman, not a, a license to go pursue divorce. Here's the real issue. The liberals in the Pharisaic movement had twisted Deuteronomy 24 to teach that divorce was permitted for any cause whatsoever, legitimate or illegitimate, biblically, providing legal, legal paperwork was done. They did what so many people do with the Bible today. They found a detail in the text, changed its meaning, amplified its implications for their own liking and taught it as doctrine. Many people do the same thing on this issue even today. We are witnessing that same problem. The same problem Jesus is addressing here in this text, namely, if someone wants a divorce badly enough, they will seek to justify it in any way possible, even finding biblical justification. There is one biblical justification that's not mentioned in Mark, but we'll get to that in Matthew next week. Secondly, second critical reality. I know you have questions. We'll get them next week. God has provisionally, number two, provisionally, look at these italics. He has provisionally allowed some divorce. Provisionally some. He has provisionally allowed not commanded, some divorce. Now there's three parts of this I wanna break down with you. God has, letter A here, provisionally allows some divorce, but God's provision of divorce is due to rebellion against his ideal. 
Verse five. But Jesus said to them, not because he gave you permission, but because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment, which they were calling. He's being a little bit tongue in cheek here. Is that commandment? The commandment that you're saying is a commandment is actually because your heart is hard. When the covenant of marriage is broken, it always involves hardness of a human heart. That is, someone or both people are violating the marriage relationship. This is why Moses is said to have permitted divorce. He tolerated it. Yet divorce was never God's original design. If there was actual adultery, things are different. We'll talk about that next week. Mark doesn't include what we call the exception clause, except for the cause of adultery. He doesn't list that. We'll look at Matthew's listing of that in the same conversation next week. Now, it is important to review the account of the conversation that we do call the exception clause just as a prelude to next week. Recording the same conversation, Jesus says in Matthew 19, 8, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, and it has not always been this way, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, Adultery, sexual perversion, marries another woman and commits adultery. That's an exception clause, and it is there in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19, and we're gonna look at that next week. But since Mark doesn't include it, we're gonna set it aside for the moment. I think Mark is establishing the foundational importance of the one flesh relationship to his Roman audience. He's highlighting Jesus' sobering demand that marriage is intended by God to be a lifelong, monogamous, and faithful relationship. But just because the exception clause is not mentioned here, it doesn't nullify it in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19. Just know that. I have had people tell me, well, Jesus doesn't include the exception clause in Mark 10, so it's not clear that it should be Included, except if he includes it, the Holy Spirit includes it in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. I think that's clear enough. Jesus' point is that the provision for divorce was God's response, listen, to the hardness of heart in a person who would not be faithful to their vows to love and care for their spouse. It was a provision for some but it wasn't ideal. Secondly, or letter B, God has provisionally allowed some divorce, but God's creation in marriage is an undissolvable union. God's creation in marriage is an undissolvable union. Verse six, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, man shall leave his father and his mother. The two shall become one flesh and they are no longer two but one flesh. Jesus now quotes Genesis 1.27, Genesis 2.24 and Genesis 5.2 and he combines them in his own package. Can we just have a little aside for a moment? You do understand that Jesus took Adam and Eve literally. He took the Genesis account of man and woman at face value and took it literally Man wasn't representing all of the males and Eve, all the females. No, he took Adam and Eve as literal historical figures in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 as literal historical fact. Jesus believed in a historical Adam and Eve. The Lord now returns to Moses and a command Moses did make. He says, you want, you want to go tango about Moses and the law and, and commandments? No command in Deuteronomy 24, but there is a command that you're ignoring. <clears throat> Verse six gives us an incredible insight into the doctrine of man from the beginning. It's a way of saying that this was God's original divine design. God made humans male and female and he did so biologically, he did so physically, he did so emotionally with unique roles and distinctive ways to image his glory. They are male and female. So when a husband and wife come together in marriage, they are no longer, according to 
Moses in Genesis and Jesus quoting Moses, they are no longer two distinct people, but somehow in a mysterious, awesome, inexplicable union, they become one, one flesh. Divine arithmetic in marriage is this, one plus one equals one. And this union is not created by a wedding ceremony, by the lighting of the unity candle. Where does it come from? Letter C. God has provisionally allowed some divorce, but God's command forbids dissolving a divine union through divorce. Verse nine, what therefore, who's the subject? Who's the subject? God has joined together, let no man separate. A marriage is something that God himself joins together. The two becoming one is a divine creation. I know, I know my own heart. I know my own experience. I remember seeing my wife, who wasn't my wife then, Kim, at a junior high staff meeting. She came in the room. The violin started Life went in a slow motion. Her hair was floating in the wind and she was not touching the ground. And I stared until I saw her staring and I looked away and then I stared again. And if you were to ask me then and now, I saw the most beautiful woman in the world, she still is. I saw the godliest human I knew and no, and she still is, and, and I married her. And God smiles and says, that's what you think. But I brought the two together. Look at what it says. God joins them together. God is the author of that union. The question Jesus is raising in this verse is if, it is if a man will use a divorce, listen, to unjoin what God himself has joined together. You see that? Hear Jesus clearly. To break up a marriage is to untie what he has tied. It is to break what he has created. It is to give up on what he has provided grace for. It is to separate what he has joined And this is a serious and grievous sin against the creator of the universe and the creator of a marriage bond to pursue a divorce. And I know I can hear, I can feel the questions you have, but you gotta come back next week. The third critical reality of Jesus' teaching on divorce, we're just gonna wade into this one because we're gonna pick it up in a fuller Discussion next week because Matthew records Jesus actually giving greater um, depth on these. The consequences of marriage after divorce are serious. Number three, the consequences of marriage after divorce are serious. We've gone from probably an outdoor moment where these crowds have surrounded Jesus. He's teaching them willingly. He's unpacking truth to them. Pharisees come. They try to challenge him. They're trying to trap him to incriminate himself so that Herod or the crowd will turn against him. But we're transported in verse 10 from the crowd inside a house. We don't know whose house it is. I hope that if you or I had lived in Perea, we'd have said, you want to come over? In the house, the disciples question him about this again. You have two sets of questioners here, the Pharisees and the disciples. The Pharisees were trying to trap him. The disciples, as we will find out in a moment, we're just trying to figure out what is he saying? This is pretty serious. Jesus said to them, he's elaborating now, he's giving the end notes, the footnotes, the, the appendix, men, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. The debate is over. 
and personal discipleship instruction is happening and instruction is happening in this home. Matthew tells us that they made this conclusion. Think about this. They're hearing Jesus talk and this is what they say. Matthew is really interesting. Matthew 19, 10. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. In other words, the consequences are so serious. If you fail, then you ought not try. At stake here is the seventh commandment by means of divorce and remarriage. You shall not commit adultery. And his point here is illegitimate divorce proliferates adultery. It expands it. It deepens it. It spreads it. Now, illegitimate divorce. We're gonna come back to that next week because there's an exception clause that we need to discuss more fully. A question usually gets raised about those who have divorced without biblical justification regarding this adultery. Is it a one-time sin or is it perpetual? I have been asked many times, okay, let's say that I did it, I blew it, I was divorced wrongly, there wasn't biblical justification. I got married, my wife got married. Are we committing adultery every single time we are intimate? Had that been what Jesus intended, he would have used a different verb. This is a present tense verb. He would have used a participle that means an ongoing sin. He just simply says they commit adultery. Because think about this. This is a one-time, first time of intimacy sin. Jesus would have used a different grammatical verb or participle actually if it were ongoing. He uses a simple present tense If the new union involved perpetual adultery, that would mean there is always grounds for divorce. Can you imagine if that were the case? Then you would fall into the little syllogism that my dad taught me. It's never right to do wrong to do right. Well, I made a mistake. Shouldn't have gotten married. We, we committed adultery. We're committing adultery every time we come together. So we should divorce to remedy that. Sneaking ahead to a phrase Paul uses next week, I think he says when you find yourself in, a, in an awkward and strange condition, stay or remain as you are. point he's stressing here with the disciples is that collateral damage of divorce is serious and involves breaking the seventh commandment. You ever thought about the fact that adultery was so important that it made God's top 10 list? 636 laws in the Old Testament. He chose 10 of them as the the summary and the paradigm for all of the rest. And one of those 10 is not to commit adultery. It's no minor offense. And as I said earlier, suggested in the beginning, the consequences of divorce are serious before God if there's adultery. The consequences of divorce are serious and devastating to children and family members and friends and tarnishing the reputation of God's people. So, what if you've been divorced? What if you've remarried? Can you hold on till next week? Unless you wanna stay, let's hold on till next week. But I think this passage is really important for those yet to marry and those who are married and have contemplated divorce. Malachi 2.16, where we began, God says, I hate, I hate divorce. I know, I feel the question, what if someone was unfaithful to me? What if there was abuse? What if there was physical violence? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? And I have heard hundreds of what ifs. We're gonna try to categorize some of those next week and, and answer the question as much as the scripture will let us answer on the what ifs. But just until next week, lest you, I leave you troubled, there is grace greater than all our sin. You know what we know about God? He's good. 
He's forgiving. He's holy. He cares about us. So if you, I just feel as, as just your friend, as a pastor, this is so hard that you'll leave thinking, I am somehow unclean and beyond the reach of God's grace. You know what the good news is? We have all, all of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory. But he's made a way and a provision to forgive our sins by punishing our sins in his son instead of us and giving the perfect righteousness of his son to us, the divine exchange that we sang earlier. And he's not dead, he rose from the grave and offers us newness of life regardless of our past. What a God. So before we get to the what ifs and the yes buts, Swim in God's grace, in God's goodness. You are good and you do good, Psalm 119 tells us. Believe and trust in his grace in the gospel while equally holding the vast, massive seriousness of divorce. Jesus has said some hard things. And he says more of them in Matthew. And we're gonna hear those next week. But that same Jesus who is being so strict is the same Jesus who said, the sins that you commit, I will die in your place for. What a God. What a God we have. So we're not done. And we'll, we'll pick this up at least next week and maybe for the next two because this is just a point that impacts all of us, doesn't it? Either in our immediate, our extended families, our friends, and we need to have answers and standards and regulations and grace. Because that's the flavor and the reputation and the aroma of those who've received the gospel.